Born in San Francisco but raised in Hong Kong, Bruce Lee is perhaps one of the most iconic Asian Americans in U.S. history. Despite rampant racism, Lee managed to break through the exclusive gates of Hollywood, and he did so in a big way. Best known for his good looks, rippling muscles, and charismatic charm, Lee transformed perceptions of Asian American masculinity. In the United States, I think something about the Oriental, the, I mean, the true Oriental should be shown. Hollywood sure as heck hasn't. You better believe it, man. I mean, it's always that pigtail and bouncing around, chop chop, you know, with the eyes slant and all that. In 1973, Bruce Lee's life was tragically cut short due to swelling of the brain. But before his death, Lee starred in several Hollywood martial arts movies. And he performed many of his famous fight scenes without a shirt, putting his chiseled body on full display. If you run into Bruce Lee on the street, right? I mean, game will recognize game. You will just say, like, <laughs> oh, my God, this person is so strong. <laughs> you know, like the muscles on this person is unlike any other kind of muscles I've ever seen or the way he developed different parts of his body. And so mm. I would I would choose not to even fight with him because you just know you lose, right? Mm. And so he kind of behaved this way on screen. That's scholar Celine Perenya-Shimizu. She says Bruce Lee did much to defy stereotypes, particularly the idea that Asian men were effeminate and weak. But for Celine, the measure of Lee's masculinity can't simply be reduced to brute strength. It's the way Lee couples violence with regret, sexuality with consent. These are the key components of what she refers to as Lee's ethical manhood. There's this scene in Way of the Dragon that Bruce Lee wrote and directed. And the culminating Mm -hmm. scene is one with Chuck Norris. Right. And... Bruce Lee at the Coliseum. It's a really humorously shot film because the fighting is intercut with several cats, you know, kittens, who are (laughs) looking at the fight. (laughs) At the same time that it's really humorous, there's this fight to the death. And you don't quite know who's going to win, right? Chuck Norris is dressed in all white. Bruce Lee is dressed in all black. There's a moment where Bruce Lee ends up killing Colt, who's played by Chuck Norris. And there's almost like an asking of permission, like, are you going to go to the death with me? And there's an acknowledgement of consent on the side of Colt, and that's when Bruce Lee kills him. And it ends with this iconic shot of Bruce Lee, you know, bearing the pain of having taken a life. Mm -hmm. And so this is where I came up with this idea of ethical manhood, because I noticed that the killing of men is really flanked by this hesitation to kill and then a regret you know, Mm -hmm. at the costs of killing somebody. And it's really similar to the way in which he approaches women in his films as well. There's the moment where he wrestles with what would it look like, you know, for me to interact with this woman who I really want to touch, you know, but I'm not sure she wants to be touched. So there's a famous scene, well, not a famous scene, there's a scene that I study where the woman who he's having a romantic connection with. You know, they they look at each other. The way they first meet each other is during this scene, almost like a, a house party where everyone's drinking. And the men are talking about 
how you are really powerless in the face of a really sexual woman and you can't really help yourself, but you have to get with them, you know, because mm-hmm. that's what they want. You know, it's kind of brutish and really horrible. But this whole time that these men are talking in the background, Bruce Lee and this woman are looking at each other in a really kind of humorous but intently romantic way. And slowly throughout the movie, you'll see that this woman is being preyed upon by the drug lord. And after she's preyed upon and Bruce Lee saves her, he's hesitating, you know, in terms of how he should touch her. And he's not quite sure. So it's really interesting to me that that these two scenes are juxtaposed against each other, where other men in the movie feel entitled to touch women, whether or not they consent, whether or not they present themselves as sexual beings. They are really overly sexualized, you know, in service of male pleasure. But Bruce Lee occupies a different domain where he's very conscious about seeking the consent of a woman, you know, looking her in the eye and making sure that this is something that she wants to do with him. And, and on that question of, of strength and, and the way that Bruce Lee is thinking through the question of violence specifically, I mean, at the time mm-hmm. that he's making some of his earliest films, you have, again, iconic representations of male virility by way of violence. And there are characters like mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. John Wayne and characters like Clint Eastwood. I mean, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. curious about how, obviously, somebody as violent on camera as Bruce Lee's characters were, there's still a kind of thoughtfulness, as you've laid out, about how he's dealing with violence and and using it. I mean, what would you say about Lee's approach to violence compared to some of his contemporaries? He was very insistent on hand-to-hand combat, that Mm. there was something about not doing a shortcut in terms of that encounter between people who are fighting, right? But what is striking about his representations of hand-to-hand combat is that he really made sure to express facially vulnerability that Mm, discloses the emotional costs of wielding physical power over another. And this face, you know, of regret, of of a kind of shattering of the self because Mm -hmm. you wielded violence against the other is something that's so forceful and so strong that it can end up destroying him even if he's the one who's victorious and standing over a dead body, you know, whose death he caused, right? Right. And so I find that really powerful because what it does is that it reveals a kind of psychic consciousness that catches up to the bodies conducting this expression of violence. It becomes an awareness of the well-being of others in civil society beyond, you know, the gains for the self because, you know, you saved yourself when someone was trying to kill you. You're the one who didn't die. Right. So I guess the thing that is so amazing about Bruce Lee's representation of violence is that it doesn't bring about certainty. What instead it does is that it explodes gender. It Mm. explodes power. It becomes a position of uncertainty. You know, what, what we consider victory is instead the raising of many questions. Was it worth it to take that life because of that finality? Right. I'm really um, just in, in enjoying taking a moment to, to appreciate these as choices, as creative choices mm-hmm. that Bruce Lee is making, but also deeply political choices that he's mm-hmm. making through his film. And, and you know, there's, there's got to be a way to connect these creative choices with Bruce Lee's broader set of political commitments. I mean, I I would love to have you 
just to talk a little bit about um, how Bruce Lee's political vision is coming out of struggles against colonialism, struggles against you know, racism, stereotypes of Asian people. And then it just sounds like from how you're characterizing what Bruce Lee's choices are, that he really is challenging a lot of those ideas. You know, other scholars have said that this body of his and his choice of fighting against white men, black men, Italian men, you know, or, you know, men from other countries, you know, mm-hmm. or even having a, a mapping of, oh, there's a Korean kind of karate or there's a Chinese style of fighting, a Japanese style of fighting. He always wanted to show a larger field of relations, whether it's a black man struggling against racism or the characterization of the sick Chinese body from the perspective of Japanese enemies, right? Mm. He always included a larger field of social hierarchies, you know, that were represented in his films. I think it's so interesting, for example, that his film Way of the Dragon was shot in Italy. Why? You know, and it begins with this really strange encounter at the airport. You know, he arrives at the airport and there's this older white woman who is really staring him down so shamelessly and so aggressively, you know, and, and he's really uncomfortable. And um, there's this discourse of racial otherness that's happening throughout his films that's really transnational. And I think it has to a lot to do with his own experiences. You know, later in one of his interviews that he conducted before he died, he said, when I wake up in the morning, I really have to remember which side of the ocean I'm on. Am I mm. this transnational superstar in Hong Kong or am I this exotic oriental support player in the U.S.? Bruce Lee died in 1973. He was 32 years old, and he starred in only a handful of what we would call kind of Hollywood films or films with that kind of big Hollywood budget. Given that his career was largely cut short, how do you explain how he became such a cultural icon? How did Bruce Lee achieve immortality with four films, right? (laughs) I mean, it's been almost like, I mean, it's 40 plus years since he died, but he has this Elvis-like, what, what other people have called an Elvis-like iconic following. I mean, even in mm. San Francisco, right, there's a night devoted to Bruce Lee when the Giants are playing at the park downtown. Mm. And, you know, the latest Bruce Lee is a DJ t-shirt that you see on the street today. Right, right. right? I have there's, one of those. <laughs> he, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> me too. And so... Um, why did he resonate and why did he achieve this immortality? I think, and I hope this is not particular to me alone, because there's something really deeply satisfying about his representation, not just as a Superman of steel, an invulnerable god on earth. We see through his performances, you know, these pauses that happen before he wields death or before he makes a move you know, sexually or romantically towards a love object. We see that he is a man who depends on others, who needs others, and protects others in order to sustain himself. So it's a very socially embracing definition of a man. You Mm -hmm. know, it isn't a man by himself. He has to suffer the consequences of society when he kills somebody, even if it means that he has to give up his marriage or his loved one, you know, because he has to be accountable for what he's done. 
And so I think that's the kind of manhood that's so pioneering, that's so innovative and inventive that he established in these four different films. I actually don't think I've seen anyone else say that, but I'm definitely saying that, you know. And <laughs> what, I mean, maybe the reason why he has lasted in other people's minds, you know, whether it's all of these Asian-American male scholars who really prop up this idea that he's a man who can beat up everybody because he's a god to all the geeks. Mm. But this is what I personally get out of him, that we are not yet done with representations of male vulnerability on screen that does not forsake strength or being attractive. So I think Bruce Lee, in a pioneering way, established this definition of masculinity that's more open and that really declares a need and love for the other and not just a heroic version of the self alone. So to this question, um, you know, if if you were to to think about the moment we're in now in American history, I mean, we're we're obviously more than, you know, a half century removed from some of the most, um, you know, unfortunate World War II era depictions of Asians and Asian Americans. We are a full half century removed from Bruce Lee's, you know, earliest work on, on screen. And yet, as we've been discussing, he holds fast to a, a, a certain kind of dominance as an iconic figure. And clearly, he's someone that's not going to go away. And, and so just based on mm. your, your your own sense of where the, the arc of history is bending relative to the place of Asian Americans in American life, the role of someone like Bruce Lee in world culture, what do you see as the possible and, and positive future for Bruce Lee's status as an iconic figure? I'm such an unhappy spectator because Mm. so few people who are not cisgendered, straight, white men get to make movies in this country, right? 96% of films are made by men, and predominantly they are white men. And so what we know about how men relate to each other, whether you're in a family, you're a friend, or you're enemies, or what we know about how men occupy positions of romance in relation to their love object, whether they're men or women or trans people, we're so not done. And we need to continue to make films that really take heed from what Bruce Lee was able to do in the 70s. You know, we can't simply replicate the models of masculinity that have been written and imaged on screen. The films that will do good things, you know, for our relationships with each other are the Mm. ones that will redefine what masculinity can look like on screen beyond, you know, a hero that just counts on himself and saves the day for not only a family, but entire countries, you know, Iron Man landing, you know, and by himself gets rid of everybody. But spirits of, you know, cooperation, collaboration, or even what Bruce Lee did, which is to say, I had to kill somebody, but it cost me so much, right? Right, That the film can do so much more for us in terms of expanding our ideas of who can be loved and uh, who is strong. Do you still think of yourself Chinese, or do you ever think of yourself as North American? You, you, you know what I want to think of myself? As a human being. Because, I mean, I don't want to sound like, you know, as Confucius say, but under the sky, under the heaven, man, there is but one family. It just so happened, man, that people are different. 
Celine Perenya Shimizu is director of the School of Cinema at San Francisco State University. She's also the author of Straight Jacket Sexualities, Unbinding Asian American Manhoods in the Movies. So Nathan, Erica, I have a question. Actually, I'm going to send it towards you, Erica. I gather that we're at a moment this year in which there are a lot of anniversaries involving Chinese-American relations. Yeah, absolutely. So it's 2019. There are three important uh, anniversaries that folks have been marking. One most recently was the 70th anniversary of the founding of the Chinese Communist Party. So if anyone was watching the news, that's when all of the tanks and military parades were happening in Beijing and elsewhere. But there's also the 40th anniversary of reestablishing full diplomatic relations between the U.S. and China, which uh, had occurred in 1979. And then the most fraught anniversary, I think, for U.S.-China relations is the 30th anniversary of what we in the West refer to as the Tiananmen Square Massacre, where an estimated, you know, between hundreds to thousands were killed, um, as many as 10,000 arrested following a month of pro-democracy protests. So in many ways... This show on the Chinese in America and U.S.-China relations could not be more timely. There's also the fact that Asian Americans are the fastest growing group in the United States, uh, over 5 million Chinese Americans. Well, and, and let's build on that because, um, as you noted, all of those anniversaries are really centered on Chinese-American relations, but the show that we just did talks about a lot more than that. Yeah, so this is the complicated aspect of Asian American history and and I think especially Chinese American history because as we've seen from uh, the interviews with Nancy Davis and Karen Leong and Celine Perenius Shimizu, there's a long history of Asian Americans in the United States that many people don't know about. And yes, it's shaped by U.S. international relations, but it's also a history that's been shaped by fractured race relations mm -hmm. and immigration debates. And we can't understand any of these key figures, Afang Moy, Mei Ling Song, Bruce Lee, without understanding all three of those stories. It almost feels like when, when you deal with the question of Asian American Americans, you know, really thinking about them as U.S.-born folk who have, you know, families and multi-generational belonging to the United States, that there's always still this question of how does foreign policy impact their experience of America. And, and to your point, Erica, it almost feels like that's a distinctive problem for that group in terms of how they experience the racial problem in the United States. Yeah, that's absolutely right. It's sort of, you know, for better or for worse, Asian Americans have always been tied to Asia, uh, whether they want to or not. And it's a particular form of racialization that they've always been seen as more foreign than American, especially during times of tense international relations, whether it be the trade war now or the anti-communist 1950s. 
Uh, that is a time when Chinese Americans' loyalty to the United States, their very Americanness, has has always come under suspicion. And this is a theme that's that's really not just of recent invention, but of course has has really long, deep historic ties. You know, as the early American historian here, and even early this week gets to the 19th century. <laughs> but um, when we're talking about the 19th century, you certainly get in the story of Afang Moy the sense of how exotic in every sense of the term and unfamiliar she was and everything that she represented mm, was. Mm. And what's interesting about the later stories, the, the 20th century stories, is there still seems to be, you know, that deep sense of unfamiliarity that isn't necessarily true of all immigrant groups. Right. Is there something distinctive about the Chinese in America along those lines? Yes, absolutely. You know, I was thinking about it in terms of preparing for the show and thinking about, yeah, so, you know, what are some of the other parallel immigrant experiences in relationship to U.S. international relations? And it, it's all Asian. Mm. <laughs> I think if we were to make this show about Japanese Americans and U.S.-Japanese relations or South Asia, you would have the same types of themes that we could sort of map on. So in early American history, it would still be that search for Asia, the search right. for mm -hmm. Asia in terms of riches, in terms of conquering, in terms of um, Christianizing a heathen mm -hmm. land. And then similarly in the immigration decades, the late 19th, early 20th century, you would have the same inassimilable foreigner, more like African-Americans than European immigrants kind of, you know, racialization. Obviously the same exclusion laws, the same bars to naturalized citizenship. So you would have the same mapping if we're talking other Asian immigrant groups. Um, I would think it's more similar to Mexico, Mexican-Americans and fraught U.S.-Mexican relations for sure, to show one's pride and one's ancestry in this political climate opens up the doors to charges that you're not fully American, don't want to become American, are, is, are part of a larger immigrant invasion from the South. What's the commonality here? It's It's race. It's race and a particular kind of racialization in terms of which immigrants are more assimilated, more Americanized than others, regardless of generation in the United States. But the thing about the, the, the Asian American question that is I always find to be so striking is it's, it's a group about which there are these lingering narratives about forever foreignness, even as there are a bundle of what are effectively positive stereotypes about this group. So when you think about, you know, the way in which we regard Native Americans, we're surprised to see Native Americans engaged in modern practices like driving cars and using appliances, right? That actually becomes a way of fixing that population in space and time, imagining that they're on this kind of timeless reservation. And obviously you think about the question of folks coming across the border, there's always a sense about, well, they're struggling with their language, they, they engage in particular kinds of, of unskilled work, and, and this is, you mm -hmm. know, a way that we have to then deal with the question of the border crisis, and, and very much in these terms. And this is a very different dilemma, where you have a population that, again, goes back to the 1830s in terms of its, you know, discernible presence in North America, and certainly has an extraordinarily important role to play in how housing history develops, how the history of immigration develops, how popular culture develops. And yet it's almost as if there's always this sense that at any moment,
point, any kind of geopolitical concerns, like in, in the case of a trade war with China, can write them right out of the American story. So I guess I'm curious about how we're to understand this kind of duality of positive, you know, negative stereotypes. Like, how does this work in the case of the Asian American presence in America? Yeah, I mean, I think that framework of duality is really important. I also think of it in terms of uh, a probationary status. You know, so one of the positive stereotypes that, you know, I'm sure listeners are thinking about is the model minority. This idea that Asian Americans, of course, lumping together a really diverse group of of peoples into, you know, one category. But this idea that Asian Americans are somehow the model minority more than African Americans, Latinx peoples, Native Americans, meaning that they, quote unquote, play by the rules, they, Mm -hmm. quote unquote, work hard. And now there's all sorts of data and research that shows how false the model minority uh, mm. stereotype is. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, it's so persistent mm-hmm. in sticks, um, yeah. defining the ways that many Americans think of Asian Americans. The other sort of labels that I think are perhaps more useful in thinking about this idea of duality is forever foreign and honorary white. You know, mm-hmm. so so Asian Americans are so such a fascinating case study because they they go from the 19th century being you know, much more categorized alongside African-Americans and Native Americans as these racial problems, racial inferiors, um, to now, you know, whiter than white. You know, the whole <laughs> tiger mom phenomenon of a couple years ago that Asian-Americans are outpacing, outcompeting, out-earning whites. This is still a threatening stereotype because there's, right. you know, it's still based on this zero-sum racial game where, you know, one's quote-unquote success comes at the expense of white Americans. It's a, a complicated sort of status that's both domestic based on what's happening in the U.S., um, race relations, immigration debates, et cetera, but also just, you know, much more tied towards the international side than many other groups in the United States. The other thing along similar lines that is striking to me, and in particular about the three stories that we explore today, um, is all of the complications of that duality um, of seeming foreign, but seeming, as you put it, sort of whiter than white. All three stories in one way or another, those three people, it's culture that gives them the major impact that they have in the United States. It's being on stage, it's being in film, it's being having a speech broadcast on the radio. And that's striking too, is that there's there's a, the political dimension and the sort of international dimension and a race dimension. And then mix that in with what people find to be the attractive parts of Asian culture and Chinese culture and the ways in which the media familiarizes these people with Americans and then changes their thinking. Right, right. I mean, you know, is is there something about the history of all of these different forms of engagement and transformation in American life coming out of a Chinese-American, you know, tradition that will hopefully, you know, be much more evident on the political stage or even in in a cultural arena that's not simply relegated to cuisine or, you know, to other kinds of cinematic representations, right? That there's a future of of broad expression for Chinese-Americans. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think 
actually that the demographics of immigrant America actually are going to sort of necessitate that diversity because, you know, even though on this show we're talking about Chinese Americans and then when we talk about other immigrant groups, we often use similarly broad terms like Mexican Americans, you know, we're talking about groups that are extremely diverse in terms of generation and class and right. mm-hmm. where they've come from. And you can see this very precisely within the Chinese American community and how fast it has transformed in the past generation. So mm-hmm. maybe, you know, 1980 or so, we're talking about the Chinese American population being majority, maybe 60, 40 U.S. born. Now it's exactly opposite. Wow. Back then, hmm. you know, most Chinese Americans came from the southern region of China. Now it's from all across the that great country. Politically, it's extremely diverse as well. Older generations tend to vote Democratic, newer, more conservative. There's a very active group, Chinese Americans for Trump, which, you know, has taken some people by surprise. And of course, the the debates over affirmative action. Uh, Mm -hmm. So where Chinese Americans are fitting into and making their voices heard in terms of, again, our ongoing debates over immigration and race, it's a much more diverse field of voices than we've ever had before. But it's also perhaps one of the most fraught times Hmm. um, because of these ongoing tensions between U.S. and a much more powerful China than we've ever seen in the U.S. history period that we're talking about in this show. Well, I mean, I suppose in a way you could say it's appropriate. We're talking about a moment of change in American society. And we had a really kind of wonderful change in this week's episode, which is having you here, Erica. And um, really, thank you for being here with us. Indeed. Here, here. Thank you so much. <laughs> 